I'm not normally shy <laughs> to insult your intelligence. It, I would say it was a default position of all three of you to insult my intelligence. We insult each other's intelligence. Equally. Hmm. Do you think in my absence, by the way, last week, guys, you may have jumped the shark by the three of you having a conversation about fashion at the very beginning of the podcast? No, no. Were you not here last week? <laughs> oh, yeah. You, yeah, you weren't, were you? We missed you, Steve. We really did. I, I couldn't really... Your personality past- and your content are irreplaceable, clearly. Chinch, for one, definitely noticed. I, I did. It was like there was... Yeah, there was something missing. Just to, I don't, I can't really describe. Oh, it was Steve, wasn't it? That's how you describe it. It was Steve was missing. Yeah, I'd like it if Chinch had said it was that sort of loss of sort of gantry brotherhood that he felt. But it was probably just that nobody said. I'd love to say that, Steve. Was. I would love to say that. Uh, but and it is true. There is a brotherhood of of gantriness, which Rory and you clearly would understand because probably don't even know thermals. It, it, Steve, you and I are a different breed, aren't we? So yeah, I, I should have felt it. I felt it more in my my heart and my soul, but I uh, I, I didn't. Thanks, Chinch. It's okay. I'll remember that next time I'm making the the the, the extra two flight walk up the stairs from the with a cup of tea. Gantry, gantry yeah. <laughs> Holding onto the rickety railing, knowing Which... that there's a, a a warm, loving embrace in wait, awaiting me when I get there. Which bit of our fashion chat did you object to? Do you have another acceptable colour of trouser? No, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't the content. It was the fact that the three of you were having it. It's a great conversation. I think uh, by making that at that point with that tone of voice, Steve is thinking himself above the fray somewhat. Just because he's the only person who comes from enough of a middle class family to actually own both raspberry and mustard trousers, does not does not give him uh, the right to be able to be quite so dismissive. Hugh, I will have you know that my my trousers are not raspberry. They are probably close to cranberry. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure Steve does have some some unacceptably coloured trousers. I do. Yeah. This is this is why we had this conversation when you weren't here, Steve. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who, if he were to be in the next Jack Reacher novel, he'd be a well-meaning techno geek who would explain to Reacher what social media is. Rory Smith, who, if he were to be in the next Jack Reacher novel, he'd be a scrawny redneck delinquent whose petty criminal behaviour is rewarded with an immediate broken arm. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who needs to actually be in the next Reacher novel. Yes. Just go to jackreacher.com forward slash win your name and fill in the form. Because if you do, it does give us an opportunity, maybe even a chance of making that happen. Um, it should be jackreacher.com forward slash win Chinch's name. But unfortunately, they didn't have the foresight to make that the URL. Jackreacher.com forward slash win your name. You can fill in a form, put Andy Hinchcliffe in and he no, might be no, no, the novel. I've... I think we've got a big problem because I, I, we mentioned this on the podcast. You can't go with my actual name. I think you need to go with my IMG name. Remember I talked about the, the security passes that I was given at IMG. I think we need to go for Randy Chinchberger because there's no way Andy Hinchcliffe is going to work because people will know that name. Around the world, they know that name and it's just not going to make any sense in a regional novel. It has to be adapted. So I think Randy Chinchberger, what he would be, who knows, but he had Rusty Rutherford in the Sentinel. So it, Randy Chinchberger is legitimate. Uh, we are we are all lucky enough to have uh, IMG names. Uh, mine is Ferry Hugag, um, so <laughs> I'm not sure that would work particularly well in a Jack Reacher novel. Um, but uh, yes, whichever way you think it uh, is best to go, then please go to jackreacher.com forward slash win your name. I'm sure it won't happen, but let's have some fun making it not happen. Um, the food is, uh, I need to tell you, um, 
And <laughs> this is important because we're all in lockdown and don't get to visit these places. I need to tell you about the chicken samosas at Fusion Deli on Lapwing Lane in Didsbury. Uh, have you ever been and have oh, you partaken? My partridge, me so tasty. Delivery had that delivery from my friend at me so tasty. Is this an advert or is it's this? Not, it's not. Just, we stumbled upon some chicken Got samosas sponsor at Fusion now. Deli. And okay. um, they're just the, the best chicken samosas I've ever had. Which one is Fusion? Uh, it's the one on the parade of shops by the post office. What's it next to? Used to um, be next to the, the big Thai restaurant. What's it? Chili Bananas? That's, that's no more. Oh yeah, okay. Not chili no, not bananas, plural. It's chili banana. If you had they... a number of them, side to say it's chili banana. No, it was double. It was They're a double. Not cool. chili yeah, double fronted. It was double fronted chinch. No, 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 no. So uh, anybody who's in the um, Disbury West Disbury area and needs a snack, go to Fusion Deli for the chicken samosas. Maybe next time I get them free. Uh, the football is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Is this the topic that Stephen floated? It is indeed. Yeah, I have no idea what it is. As we, a little later than usual, head towards the second half of the season, what is our relationship with behind-closed-doors football? Has it become so familiar that it's not really a big deal anymore? Or as we head into the kind of football where the stakes will be raised, are we being reminded that the game and the spectacle might be suffering a little more under our noses than we previously thought? Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Harvey Sayer is first this week. Dear Be Real, DJ Muggs, Send Dog and Eric Bobo. We are all definitely cool enough to not have to Google Cypress Hill uh, after ah. reading those names. Numerous topic suggestions have crossed my mind, yet this is what it has taken for me to write an email. Have you seen the used car website, Cinch? My suspicions ah. were immediately aroused as it is awfully close to the nickname of a seven cap England international with an alarming turnover of new rides in his driveway. He says, the gig is up, Andrew Hinchcliffe. And he sent us a URL just to check that it's real. But we've seen the adverts. Best wishes to you all for the outstanding work across all platforms. That's from Harvey Chinch. So, uh, so that's what it took for him to actually write in. That's what it took. That tipped the balance, did it? All the great topics that are out there. Hearing stinch and thinking, yeah, I'm a car dealership. That's what made him write in. Brilliant. Uh, cinch, not stinch. No, cinch. I know it's cinch. I think he'd know what the name of his own business is. <laughs> no, it isn't my business. Can I just make it clear? It isn't my business yet. <laughs> You're just running a depot. So, it's fine. What do they do? So they, you get loads of used cars, check to sell them on, make profit from them. From your home, right? Plus, uh, who's, is, it Roy, is it Ryland? Ryland that does it. Ryland, yes. He yeah. does the, um, the adverts for that. Well, apparently, I don't know. Nothing to do with me. Because his voice chinch is very similar to the one that you put on uh, doing the, the Out of Context Reacher recently. What, for doing my Midwest well, Detective? So <laughs> that voice. It's all tied right together island. very, very nicely. Low mileage. <laughs> yeah, Ryan is definitely not from the North. No, he's excellent. not. He's, from he's an excellent broadcaster. He's uh, excellent broadcaster. He is, having having uh, spent two weeks with him on the Radio 2 Breakfast Show, I can tell you that he is indeed really? an excellent broadcaster. What does he think of me? Does he think I'm an excellent? You must have talked about me. It's natural. Well, your business partners. So I think you know the answer to that question. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, Kieran Manning has written a very long email. This is just part of it. Dear Andy and the Chunchettes. You may oh, well like that. Record a jingle, perhaps, for cinch.co.uk. I think that's our 50s band name. Let me start by saying thanks again for all of the entertainment, particularly over the last nine months. I had listened to the podcast intermittently in the past, but over the various lockdowns, I've used the time to catch up on past episodes when in the car and listen to the current ones on my walks. The cross-mixing of current and past episodes has been great, 
as parts of one podcast are often relevant to another from months or weeks later. This has added greatly to my enjoyment. Um, I've set out below some thoughts after finally catching up with all of your output and some of the trends and topics that I've noticed. In one recent podcast, Rory briefly mentioned cycling in Yorkshire, while in another, there have been a few discussions about the storage of Allen keys and Phillips head screwdrivers. If you combine these two, you get a cycling multi-tool. This is like a Swiss army knife for cycling with a wide range of Allen key options, plus a Phillips head option too. See picture, for example. He sent us a picture. I think this would solve all of Chinch's Allen key and screwdriver needs. Secondly, in last week's podcast on pragmatism, I think there is one important point that you missed. There can be a conflict between a manager trying to do what is best for his team and what is best for his own reputation. With three points for a win, there is an incentive for teams to risk defeat in order to increase their chances of winning, even if that means the occasional heavy defeat. And this seems to be a key part of Marcelo Bielsa's thinking, for example. On the other hand, a manager who plays more cautiously to avoid defeats may get fewer points, but will protect their own reputation. This is the manager being pragmatic in relation to his reputation, but not to his team. Also, I have a complaint about episode 211 in that you seem to have missed out on what could potentially be a game changer in the sporting world. After listening to Andy describing Neville Southall trying to hit mascots with footballs, it struck me that there would be a massive TV audience for this type of event. Imagine an event where each Premier League team had to send a mascot to act as a human target and a player to try and hit the other team's mascots. The precise rules would need to be worked out, but I think you could have a combination of a battle royale event, head-to-head -head events, or even time trials. There could be marks for hitting a mascot with a bonus for knocking them off their feet, or maybe a knockdown is required to win. The possibilities seem endless, and the mascot costumes would help to make the whole event less risky in a COVID world. Think of how many columns could be written and the TV discussions that would take place on the tactics. Do you aim for a mascot who is smaller and nimble, or do you go for one that is bigger, that can take more punishment? How do you pick the player? You would need an accurate ball striker who would be happy to potentially injure mascots. For some reason, I think many players would send fullbacks. Unless the four of you have a hidden talent for harmonising sea shanties, this could be your best opportunity for global fame. Thanks again for all the entertainment. I look forward to the next 200 plus episodes. That's from Kieran. So well, you could use it as a tiebreaker in the, the halftime discussion at Anfield. It's nil-nil between Liverpool and Manchester United, but Alisson has already hit Fred the Red twice. <laughs> so United have got to come out in the second half and make the difference. That's interesting to think. If you were to say, yeah, nominate Alisson to be your Liverpool ball striker, would he naturally go for the United mascot or would he try and pick off, say, a kind of a Burnley mascot? Who would he, who would he go for? You see, that's the thing. Did you have to go for your big rival's mascot, knock his head off, knock him out of the competition? Or do you go, it depends on the, again, mascots, I don't, do they vary in, they must vary in size, mustn't they? Well, that so West again, Brom one, he'd be easy. Is he a boiler? Yeah. You'd say that'd be, how far away would you be as well? Would there be a, how far are we kicking the ball? Are we drilling at them from close range? Because that would be really enjoyable, wouldn't it? You know, really belting it from like 10 yards away. I think That'd we are wonderful, wouldn't it? workshopping this to already some sort of conclusion. You get weighted points for size of mascot. The smaller, the more points. And you get weighted points for the further away you are from each mascot. Again, the further you are away, the more points you get. There we go. Ah. League system. Thanks, Kieran. We've done it. Sam like Fires that. has chimed in on pragmatism from Soprano's country. So he gets to continue a little theme that's been developing over the last couple of weeks. Greetings from New Jersey to Tony, Christopher, Paulie and Big Pussy. While I enjoyed your conversation on pragmatism and broadly agree with Rory and Jonathan Wilson that pragmatism cannot simply be reduced to defensive or reactive football, I kept wondering, does this mean all managers are, by definition, pragmatists? 
If the true mark of pragmatism is to set up your team to get a positive result, then which managers qualify as idealists or non-pragmatists? Which managers, as a matter of principle, do not tweak their preferred tactics to the circumstances? Maybe I'm missing something here, but is it fair to say, in Messrs. Smith and Wilson's terms, that everyone is a pragmatist? Indeed, this got me thinking about philosophy. Now, as an American, I know that the only philosophical tradition that we can take credit for is the 19th, 20th century philosophy of pragmatism. Like our everyday understanding of pragmatism, capital P philosophical pragmatism holds that ideas cannot be separated from the social context in which they operate. And the best ideas are those that, in a nutshell, work the best in terms of allowing people to flourish within society. It is a philosophy that places a premium on experience and experimentation, rather than a priori assumptions of the good or the just or a priori assumptions about human nature. This is, Rory, would you be able to explain a priori? Uh, essentially, just... it's a, I googled it. It's essentially, um, you haven't eaten all day, therefore you must be hungry. That is an a priori assumption. But, he says, and this is important to my point, it cannot be said that Marxists, liberals, or even fascists don't think their theories of society, human nature, will not create the best outcomes for society when operationalized in politics or social movements. It's just that they, as idealists, not pragmatists, have guiding presumptions about human nature, the just and the good that guide their politics. Now, I read that really slowly so that I could understand it. So I hope you're still with us. What separates idealist managers like Guardiola, Bielsa, Wenger, and even Mourinho from true pragmatists is that they have firm beliefs about what constitutes winning football before they even walk into the training ground and meet their players for the first time. Guardiola, a priori, believes that having the ball is preferable to not having the ball and will assist on possession as a means to an end. His squads will be remade in his image no matter where he manages. In Mourinho's case, if a player refuses to bend to his will, see Ali, Delhi, he marginalises them in the hope that they'll be offloaded. Do they tweak their tactical approach at the margins based on the contingencies of the moment? Sure, but I would argue it doesn't shake their foundational principles. Idealists have an underlying stubbornness about the virtues of their their preferred system, whether that system is attacking slash proactive or defensive slash reactive. It seems to me that true pragmatists are managers who are able to adopt manifold systems and tactics based on the players they have at their disposal, while remaining largely agnostic or at least open about the best way to play. Pragmatism isn't a style of football, it's a style of management that says we'll do what works with what we have, which begs the question not of who isn't a pragmatist, but who, in a true sense, is. That's Sam Fayaz from Jersey City, New Jersey. Good email, that. It was, uh, sorry, Sam, I did have to edit it slightly, but uh, hopefully um, the, the sense of it was as so Is there anyone who, who fits that bill, any manager who you look at? And I wonder if quite a lot of the Italian managers fit that bill most naturally, that kind of school of Allegri, particularly maybe even Ancelotti, who kind of doesn't seem to have any preconceived ideas of how a team should play. They just sort of wander in, see what they've got, find whatever they think works best and do that, change it if it doesn't, and are quite scornful of the rise of idealism. But the interesting thing with, with Allegri, certainly not Ancelotti, is that I think Allegri is so anti-philosophical that he might now be unemployable at the, at the top level, because I think clubs want to hear what someone's philosophy is. So is, is Bielsa an idealist or a pragmatist? Because he's gone into Leeds and he's looked at the squad that he's got and he's bent them to his will but he hasn't if you're saying well Guardiola changing the personnel to fit how you want football to be played Bielsa's not actually said right to play my way I'm going to get rid of half the team and bring in players that can play my way he's got the players that he had to play his way 
Is that what we're saying? If you have the ability to get the best out of the bunch of players that you have, are you then an idealist or are you a pragmatist? Because he's not really changed that squad to, to enable them to play the way that he wants. He's got the, the squad he inherited to play the way that he wants. What's interesting about Bielsa, I suppose, is that he is an idealist in the sense that he's wandered in and said, you're going to play the way that I think is best. He's an a priori idealist. This is, this is the way that... I play, so we're going to play that way. But he's also a pragmatist, as it might be that playing that way is the best way to get the most out of that squad. It seems you can be both. You maybe can be both at the same time and slightly contradictorily. It's almost like it's a slightly pointless discussion. Which, therefore, ticks the very box that we expect it to. Welcome to Set Piece Menu. <laughs> Finally, to uh, Adam Bremner, uh, who you'll remember. Uh, Dear Cod Chips, Mushy Peas and a Pint of Lager. Greetings from New York City. Your pod oh, I want to be Mushy Peas. Can I be Mushy Peas? Cod. Just for once, can I be Mushy Peas? Yeah, you're Cod. I'm not I'll be cod. Mushy Peas. Steve, can be a Pint of Lager. What, what was the other one? A fork. Cod Chips, Mushy Peas Oh, yeah, you be Chips, lager. you. I'm glad. I'm glad to... I, quite, I prefer the idea of Hugh being a small wooden fork. Yeah, breaks yeah, yeah. that breaks food... after the first couple yeah, of. Yeah, he's not a food stuff. It just melts. Uh, greetings from New York City. Adam tries again. Your pod continues to bring joy and distraction as I commute. He says from bedroom to living room each day. It's amazing how long that trip can take with the right level of distraction. In your search for a sponsor, I have an idea. My wife runs an interior design company and focuses on residential do-overs, kids' bedrooms, kitchens. Ah, oh, just all the decorating done. Given everyone's oh. back on lockdown and listening to you, it's the perfect audience to pitch a change to. She's been doing some of this over Zoom. I'm sure, without having asked her, she'd be happy to provide some design services to the four of you. For example, how about a revamped home office with proper working Wi-Fi for Rory? A repainted boys' regime bedroom for Ed with the appropriate colour scheme to match sheets and comforter cover and a bigger and better trophy room for Chinch with a full wall shelf for his Reacher novels. Until the next time AB, PS, does Chinch realise there are 25 Reacher books? Unlike Rory, I've read them all and there's not a bad one there. Let's start a book club and read them in order. Uh, that is from Adam Bremner, correspondent of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. 25? Yeah, all belters, apart from the one that was based in London, which was diabolically bad. It just doesn't work. You want to hear stories about places in America that exist that you clearly would never have heard about. You don't want to hear about Jack Reacher driving around the M25 in a Vauxhall Corsa. It just does not work, Lee and Andrew. Uh, does anybody uh, have need for Mrs. Yeah, Bremner's services? Yeah, we desperately we do. We, we really do, to be fair. Um, so, yeah, Mrs. Bremner might find that she gets a crawl. Where would you start? I think the current thinking is that we will start at the top and work our way down, which is genuinely one of the biggest... I mean, I, I don't know. This do, We've got a YouTube channel, haven't we, that I've never been on. I've never been on it, yeah. But, What's YouTube? Um, <laughs> my, uh, it's like videos of cats and far right political propaganda. Yeah, it's that. that I like both yeah. of those things. That's, that's yeah. a good blend of my, uh, my interests. It's yeah. for furry cats and conspiracy theories about satanic paedophile rings. The, that's what YouTube offers. Um, mm. Just... It hits that mark. It's a, it's a nice balance, isn't it? It's a really crossover nice balance demographic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but my my office is genuinely like a disgrace because there's kind of exposed tiling that you can see here. Um, I've just got bits of newspaper stuff on the wall. It, it's a joke, and I do need working <laughs> Wi-Fi. <laughs> Uh, so, Mrs. Bremner, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Um, let us know your rates. They need to vary between zero and zero. Thank you. Uh, now, over the course of the next week or so, most Premier League teams will have reached halfway 
in their seasons. Usually this happens, of course, over Christmas, which is a time that also is notable for its full stadia and festive atmosphere. But here we are, not only displaced in terms of time, but also climate, as after a brief reprieve for some in the autumn, fans remain unable to attend matches. This has now overwhelmingly been the case for more than seven months of football in the UK. And with lockdown expected to last until March, at least we'll have had almost a year without crowds. So what is our current relationship with behind closed doors football? At the beginning, it was new, not necessarily exciting, but perhaps a novelty uh, that we were prepared to entertain. Then it became something that formed a central part of the negotiations to lighten restrictions. And once it was clear that things were getting worse again, we settled back into it all like a couple who clearly feel it simply isn't worth all the hassle in splitting up. I mean, who'd get the goldfish? But as the season's second half brings us the higher stakes and possible dramatic denouement, both domestically and in Europe, are we about to realise that we've become just a little too comfortable with empty grounds? And will that novelty be so far from our minds that it'll feel like the product is suffering? So what is our relationship with football behind closed doors? And as Chinch mentioned, this is a Steve episode suggested prior to the episode that he wasn't here for. So now he gets a chance. <laughs> I, I thought you'd do it last week. It made more sense last week. But thank you for waiting for me. The other thing to build Listen, into Steve, this... you can't pull a pin out of a grenade, give it to us and then run away. <laughs> you have to be here when it explodes. So that your time is now. Go for it. I mean, just 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 so we're all aware, that is exactly what you should do with a grenade. <laughs> or not pull the pin out if you don't want to blow people up. I'd leave the pin in. And if you have a grenade. Chinch is a lover, not a fighter. Rory. Don't yeah, exactly. pull the pin out yeah. and yeah. then stick around. That's, that's not what you do with a grenade Such at a all. Such a coward. So Such you don't pull the pin out and just drop it at your feet? No, or just hold it. I wonder yeah, but, what's going to happen now. But Rory, no. knowing you, you'd dive on it to save us all, wouldn't you? Your, yes. Your belly would take the blast and you would save the future of broadcasting with you and myself surviving. We'd be yes. badly scarred, but with me, people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But and at least then, we'd still be able to carry on broadcasting. And you'd have to go and hunt Steve down for, for, for my death. No, the guilt, the guilt would eat him up and that would, that would destroy his life. So I'm not too concerned. Still, oh, you're still here, Steve. Sorry, I thought you'd, uh, thought you'd gone. <laughs> It seems like a conversation about what to do with a hand grenade is more interesting than football behind closed doors, Chinch. Nothing is more interesting than football behind closed doors. Are we going to have to get used to this for a little bit longer as well? Is that the other factor to weave into the conversation? Because we, we, we made some predictions when we knew that football was coming back behind closed doors as to what it would be like. And then we had some observations in the early stages of, of what the pros and cons were. But certainly by now we thought we would be back in, in nearly full stadiums. And instead, we, we appear to be in a situation where they're now talking, at least from a Premier League point of view, of a degree of confidence that fans will be back in stadiums in large numbers for the start of next season. So this is going on for, for even longer than we'd anticipated. So people are having even more time to get used to it. So it's definitely worth a revisit as, as to how football has settled into to the new normal. Has there become a familiarity with it that we have started to accept the circumstances? And, and, and has that diminished this, this argument, this discussion about the role that fans play in, in, the, match going, in, in the match going experience? Because with the recent spike in positive COVID-19 tests amongst footballers as well, there has been once again talk from some quarters of can football really go on under these circumstances? And a lot of the people 
who hold that view, I think, are also those that hold the view that football is nothing without fans, which I think is a myth that we have, have busted on a few occasions because an awful lot of football is played without fans. It's only really elite level football that has anything like large numbers of people that, that watch it in person. But I do have an overwhelming feeling that a, a large majority of games, I sense, have not been overly impacted now that it's settled. What you get from a football match behind closed doors, more often than not, you come away from feeling, well, that's the game that I would have got if 30,000 people had been here. There are one or two exceptions. And, and the exception definitely felt like it came, and which was the genesis for this thought, was the third round of the FA Cup. Without the carnival, without the colour, some of the shocks didn't quite have the same resonance. Some of those exciting stories didn't quite linger in the way that they might have done and and certainly it didn't look on tv in the way that you become used to that stage of of a historic competition you, you take the Chorley derby game for example as being one in which a non-league side beating a, a depleted championship side was not as astonishing as it might have been under other circumstances but without the supporters there it felt like it, it lacked a little bit of the resonance. And I was at, I was at Blackpool, who, who knocked West Brom out in the third round. So champ, uh, League One side beating, struggling Premier League side. Again, not an extraordinary, not an entirely unexpected proposition, but without the jubilation of the fans at the end, it, it felt like it, it lost a little bit. But I feel like those have been the exceptions rather than the rule. I think big games in the Premier League lose something I think I think the the run of the mill kind of are we talking like talking like the only the very very top yeah. you know like first versus second yeah I mean I think Liverpool United which is always a, a dreadful game anyway uh was particularly affected I think the Manchester derby was was affected a little bit I think it's it's on those kind of red letter occasions that that you notice the absence of of the fans because the fans create Maybe not, the fans maybe don't create the pressure, but they kind of they convey the pressure, I guess, to the to the players. They they are the the kind of avatars of the occasion itself. And I think in the vast majority, you know, when Chelsea are at home to Southampton or you know, Palace are at home to Burnley, which is literally my always my, my go-to <laughs> example. Of point I knew you'd say Burnley, knew it. Burnley's always Palace, Burnley. Say Sheffield United, say no Burnley. When <laughs> Palace are at home to Newcastle. Ah I think what a glitzy affair. You can. It's possible. You, you can watch that probably as a neutral. I wonder, I wonder actually if it, if it's different. If the the games that seem most lacking to people are the games that their own clubs are at home in. I wonder if that's if or possibly involved in at all. I wonder if that's the, they're the games that really seem seem lacking to people. But I think for the run of the mill Premier League games, you, you, yeah, you've kind of got used to it. You don't really notice. It's on the the big the big occasions the games that kind of that feel like they didn't decide the season even though they never decide the season that that you feel as though this is this is not what it should be but I agree with Steve that the, the clearest example is definitely so far is the FA Cup third round which for all that it felt it had all the storylines you'd want it had kind of you know a couple of as Steve says a couple of sharks surely beating Derby although Derby would without all of their senior players it was a bit less of a shock but Blackpool beating West Brom you know, Newport running Brighton close. That was Newport Brighton was a brilliant cup game. Um, Brawley Leeds was the other Brawley one. Brawley Leeds, of course, yeah. would have been greatly enhanced by by fans being in the stadium. But without fans, it all just felt a bit. It felt so obviously like a missed opportunity, almost like you you watch Croy Leeds and you think, well, 
the thing that's not happened here is the Crawley fans have not had the FA Cup third round is about moments, and no fans had those moments, and I think that's that's why it felt like it was lacking. There, there are two elements to this. There is the 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 fact that the fans being there will like intensify a storyline, and as as you said, Rory, they will they will allow us to understand what that storyline is through the way that they are experiencing. Uh, what's going on at the pitch so that's the one thing but the other thing is that you as a fan of either your team or a fan of football particularly for an event like the FA Cup third round or as we're going to see for the second half of the season those significant sporting events in our game so you know as the Champions League reaches its denouement as, as the Premier League becomes settled we will experience the difference on those occasions and that will be telling so for as much as the fact that we aren't able to have have the storyline telegraphed by fans in in every single game at the moment what we're also not getting is that 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 sense that that we would experience were we to be there now whether it's as a fan of our own teams or generally as a fan of what is transpiring on on the television so that, that those are the two two elements it would seem that we're going to learn a lot about over the course of the next few months it'll be things like the game when the title is won that people will think again Actually, this isn't normal. This is this is this is weird. This feels kind of disassociated and, and disassembled, and in some way, kind of eerie. I think that's the that's the overall impression that I've got from all behind closed doors games is that it is they are eerie. There is something inherently eerie about them in, in the truest sense of eerie, um, and I think that that will be most pronounced on those occasions when even as a neutral, you're watching it and you you have certain expectations of what the thing you are watching should look like, and it won't look like that. And I think that the Last season, when the lead titles were decided in front of empty stadiums and Liverpool had that kind of fireworks display when they got the trophy and the Champions League was won in, in, in the empty stadium of light, because it was sort of faintly novel, you didn't notice. But I think that the familiarity of it now has kind of has, has, has taken away that sense of this is new, this is weird, this is different. This is kind of... I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about, about the first lockdown and how it felt more bearable because it felt like it was a part of history. Like you kind of, you kind of steeled yourself a little bit and thought, right, you know what, I'm doing, doing my bit. I'm sitting at home and doing nothing. And that's apparently what I've got to do. And this is the sort of thing we will tell our grandkids about type thing. The, the, the six weeks, the three months, whatever it was, when we weren't allowed to leave the house. And like, if I'm honest now, this, this one, this lockdown doesn't feel like, doesn't have that same kind of sense of, of historical significance. It just feels like permanent drudgery and it's going to drag on forever and I think it's the same to an extent with with last season and this season in terms of games without fans last season it felt like this is a weird little kind of lacuna in football's history now it feels like a, a sort of eerie kind of weird bit rubbish new normal that we just have to deal with and we don't know when we're going to stop and I think it's it's on those big big occasions that that will hit home yeah familiarity is a breeder of discontent in so many different ways. And yes, lockdown is something that no, nobody wanted to do, but do it for a second time. It's not going to be the same. Even, you know, if you have a dream holiday, if you were to repeat that dream holiday immediately afterwards, it would not be as enjoyable. There's also the fact that sat in the middle of that, particularly for the UK, there was the, the, the Dominic Cummings effect that seemed to completely fracture that sense mm. of togetherness that everybody had in that first lockdown. We're all doing this. So we all understand that we have to play our part. That a natural cynicism, particularly in the UK, I don't know what it's like in other countries, a natural cynicism allows um, for that to generally kind of dilute over the course of time. But that also that single event was was particularly significant for that feeling of togetherness that then that then then dissipated in a country where we're not necessarily as quite quite as politically divided over 
coronavirus as, for example, the States. Hugh, on, on the holiday analogy there, are you speaking from the point of view of somebody who's had simply too many dream holidays recently and you've tired of them? No, but I, I uh, th- thank you for drawing that to everybody's attention. Um, what I would probably say is that having been fortunate enough to have a couple of nice holidays in my life, what I wouldn't immediately do after returning from them is repeat them. Chinch, did, did you want you, you've had your hand up a few times before <clears> I... I, I was raising my, actually raising my pen. My pen, and that tells that, you... Uh, to, really show, to show as you had a pen. Clearly, we're all used to the experience of empty grounds now, whether it be viewers or players or broadcasters. But just looking at the games, I was just interested in you saying, describing how the games seem to you. If you were to run, say, let's not say Palace Burnley, let's say Palace Newcastle, the last game, last time that was played in front of a full house, and compare that game, the tempo, the urgency... I know circumstances can change how the teams play, but if we just were to say, let's have a look at that game and look at the most recent game between the two with no fans there. Are you saying that you feel that there wouldn't be that much difference in terms of how the teams play, in terms of their their tempo and their urgency and their desire to win? Well, have all the players become comfortable with playing a different way under these circumstances? Or do you think we've kind of we've kind of bottomed out and then picked back up again? Are we where we were with those games in front of in front of full houses? Will they will they be the same now? I think we actually predicted that over time. Whilst it's lovely to think as a supporter that you can have a huge influence on the game and and those examples that that Rory has has mentioned in terms of when first meets second and the very small percentages can make the difference in terms of the outcome or or whether or not you get that dramatic late winning goal or not. A large majority of games, like the the scenario you've just just painted, Chinch, would those games not have panned out in the way with or without fans in pretty much the same way? Think of that that Leeds Burnley game that we were at together just after Christmas. I mean that the way that game went was was fairly predictable. Burnley set up to try and frustrate Leeds, were able to do so, having frustrated them, had, had a spell in the game which they did quite well themselves, but ultimately Leeds had that little bit more quality that, that saw them win the game. That, I don't imagine how that scenario would have been any different with 40,000 inside Ellen Road as it was with, with just two or 300 people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I get that sensation a lot of the time, and even what this conversation we've had so far and bringing it back to the, the FA Cup third round is that the fans being absent changed it as a spectacle for those for those of us watching on television but in terms of what happened within the white lines what we saw during the course of that FA Cup third round was was relatively predictable we had one or two upsets there were some routine victories for Premier League sides despite making multiple changes and there were were one or two frustrating games but that, that's always the case in the in the third round of the cup the other one that I so having been at Blackpool, West Brom, I was then at Manchester City, Birmingham City the following day, in which City made only a few changes against a championship team that w- were in a bit of a bad run. And you got exactly what you would have expected. You got City racing into a comfortable lead by half time, able to take off one or two key players at the break, still dominate the game in the second half. Not quite the same fluency, but the game was won in the first 45 minutes. They didn't have to worry too much about the second half, it was an entirely predictable game, regardless of what the backdrop was to it. It also helps at City, whereas they seem to insist on having a steward for every person in the ground during lockdown. So it actually swells the sense of the numbers inside. So it's quite useful. 
I think there's been individual games that wouldn't have happened had fans been in the stadiums. And the clearest example of that is United Spurs. I, I don't think United take the Villa lead Liverpool? at Old Trafford. Villa Liverpool, I don't know, to be honest. I think Villa Liverpool is it's conceivable because it was Liverpool away. Is it really? And... Is it really? Yeah, because, well, because if you know if Liverpool play that badly in front of fans, then Villa Villa and their tails up even more, aren't they? I, I suppose you can make the argument that Liverpool might have been more focused had Villa Park been full. But I don't know. I don't, I, that one doesn't feel as as impossible to me as United Spurs. United took the lead inside like five minutes, three minutes at Old Trafford. I I don't think having done that, they then lose six one to Tottenham um, at home in front of seventy six thousand at Old Trafford. I think there's certain performances from. Everton and Spurs at home that have been a bit more cautious than their crowds would generally encourage if Goodison and, and whatever Tottenham Stadium, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium were full. But are those, sorry to just jump in, are those not offset by the occasions in which anxiety from home fans would Possibly. get on top of yeah. you? So it's just a, it's a levelling out. Yeah, there's at, at each end of the spectrum, there might be the occasional game which is is affected ever so slightly one way or the other, but the mean remains consistent. Oh yeah, totally. That's what I was going to say. That I think there are individual matches that you can pinpoint and say that one that one's probably a kind of pandemic era result. That's that's a. It's definitely been easier for teams to be more cautious at home, I think, and just to treat things as a kind of not like a petri dish, but like a kind of sanitized. This is a not a training session, but like this is a controlled environment. Kind of, we can do this because we've got a controlled environment. Um, and I think there's a handful of those performances. But the vast majority of games, I think if you took Palace-Newcastle, which may, may or may not have happened this season already, um, if you took Palace-Newcastle from this season and Palace-Newcastle from two years ago and played the footage of just what happened on the pitch with no back, no background, no fan, no, no, no sign of fans, no sign of stadiums, no, 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 no noise, none of that, and asked people which one is the pandemic-era game and which is the non-pandemic-era game, I'm guessing that it'd be about 50-50. People would people wouldn't necessarily be able to pick, pick it out immediately. I think the football itself broadly is is pretty much the same. I just wondered as well <clears throat> how we feel about how a game has gone. At, at the end of the game, a crowd's reaction to a win or a loss is, is what it is. But actually, during the course of a game, when a team's attacking, the crowd's on his feet, and you can feel that surge, and it actually does, as a broadcaster, you feel as though it's doing something for... So the, the flow of the game, or your feelings about the game can actually hinge on how the crowd react as the game is being played. So if you take that all away, I, I sometimes come away from games thinking, oh, it, it was a football match, but there was no real passion or, or tempo. To it. There probably was, but sometimes the crowd's reaction to what's going on makes you notice how good or bad or how a team is attacking or not. So again, the, the crowd's influence on, on you or on me is absolutely here. Again, I just think it's before a game and at the end of a game. It's actually during the course of the game. So maybe with the crowd there, you come away thinking that probably a poor game isn't too bad because the crowd has got you thinking that there's more actually gone on. And there probably has a lot more been going on during during the game. But when the fans are taken away, it is a, clearly it's a lot more, it's a lot starker. And maybe just watching men kick a ball around, it, it it's, isn't really going to get your juices flowing. And the crowd actually make that happen. You're, you're exactly right, Chins. They are the storytellers. And yes, while you are the storyteller to the people who aren't there, you are still feeding off the sense that you get from the crowd. So if there is a tackle that the home side don't like from an away player, the nature of that tackle is judged first by the crowd because mm. they get there before you have a chance. 
So you're aware of what at least the severity of that challenge might be because of those who have instinctively reacted to it. But also you bring up a point about the coverage of the games and, that, and that's another interesting part because we are covering all these football matches and we are talking about all these football matches which sit in the same climate as they did back when, when football resumed in June, where we were asking questions and considering, as we did on this podcast, the, the, the relative merits, values or um, disappointments about the lack of crowds. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but it's now got to a certain point, as most storylines do, unless you are freshening up that storyline, unless you are finding a different way of talking about it, or unless something happens to change the narrative of that storyline, you're going to get very bored asking about it, and you'll probably feel pretty rubbish talking about it in the first place. So that there is that issue, isn't there, that if, you, if you are, you're not going to talk to a player afterwards now about what it felt like to do that in a stadium without a crowd you are not going to hear managers talk about it pre and post in their press conferences you're not really going to have a discussion chinch if you're in the studio about mm -hmm. it pre and post match either now the circumstances are exactly the same as they were in june but because we've had them for the last seven plus months we are in a situation where we don't see value in discussing it even though its inherent value has remained exactly the same to the game value good value or bad value um, over the course of those seven months. It's the horrible novelty has worn off. You're absolutely right. And again, as broadcasters, is, is it the responsibility of the broadcasters to try and, if this is how it's going to be, clearly, presumably for the rest of this season, would we think at least? At least, yeah. is it Does yeah. the responsibility of the broadcasters to try and do something? Because what, what can the game do? What can the players do? What can the the grounds, the clubs, what can they do apart from stage? That's, that's clearly the most important thing, is staging the games. How do they... How do they try and improve or, or, or make it different, make it more enjoyable if they can for viewers? It's incredibly difficult. Are they not doing that in terms of delivering what I feel is a consistent level of competitiveness that maybe some people thought would be lacking? That the quality of games has remained at a high level without that backdrop, that that the whole the team, so the teams are actively yeah, doing this yeah so that the whole yeah. thought the whole thought behind this i suppose in many ways this conversation is that football internally has responded incredibly well to this situation and that we have learned a lesson about how players are able to to so self-motivate or or have always been able to self-motivate that the influence of the crowd is perhaps not as consistently great as we've always assumed it to be that the, the level of football that we are watching has remained at a standard that we have come become previously accustomed to that there hasn't been much there hasn't been a drop off in terms of the intensity and that the important wins haven't seemed to mean any less to the players on the field because they haven't got supporters there to celebrate with and that the significance of the occasion the, the competitiveness of the match has not been compromised as a, as a consequence of not having 30, 40, 50,000 people there to enjoy it. And that football deserves a lot of credit for embracing this situation and making the best of a le less than ideal set of circumstances. Because, you know, let, let's not get into the realms of trying to suggest that football can cope without supporters in stadiums in the long run. I think we've, we've also seen the value from the from the television experience of how important it has, is to have bums on seats but I, I don't feel like I'm watching games and thinking do you know what that that was lacking something today that game 
within the context of those 22 athletes involved it, it was it was lacking something I, I haven't seen that on a regular basis but that's the point isn't it you you have become so familiar with it and with the more games that you go the more familiar you become with it the less that you start to notice it the point that we're having this the reason that we're having this discussion prompted of course Stephen by your experience in the third round of the FA Cup is when the stakes are raised are you going to start noticing it again for two reasons first of all because there is a lot on the line and so all those elements of whether you're watching it at home and trying to experience the atmosphere as a vicarious fan or you're a real fan watching from home when you would normally be there and thirdly you are in a situation where you are experiencing this stage of the season for a second time in these circumstances as much as we have become comfortable perhaps with it and that's not necessarily something that we should be but if we are are we going to start to notice that we shouldn't have been comfortable with it? And this is telling me it because of the nature of the football, the stakes, and because we're going through it for a second time. But we're not talking about two separate things. So the game itself hasn't changed particularly. I think there's, you know, there's maybe a little bit of kind of fiddling around the fringes sort of thing. But I think the, the game itself has, has found a way to, to be itself, whereas the spectacle has changed fund- fundamentally. And I, I certainly find that even what even watching games on TV, unless Jinch is commentating, then it's you know, when, when he when he, he oh, just mutes Jinch the emotion so well. Well, no, to be fair, I'm, I'm definitely going to carry on watching this. Jinch is, I'll switch him off. I am um, like quite a lot of people. I suspect I watch. I you I I have always watched quite a lot of football on mute. So either it's you, you know you're watching something and you've got a game on your laptop that you kind of keep you keep flicking your eyes to, mm. or whilst you're watching The Sopranos. Well, well, maybe not the Sopranos, yeah. but no. yeah, some something else. Um, so, what's that? Something else? Would you be? What would you be watching whilst watching something Paradise. mute? Let's the, not get into the realms of whether or not there's anything. RuPaul's better Drag than the Race, Sopranos. or something along those lines, probably for you. Death yeah. in Paradise. I've explained this before. Um, Death in Paradise. Okay. The, the greatest... You can follow both storylines easily. Yeah, very easily with with Death uh, in Paradise. So probably less so. So you're used Paradise. to watching it on mute, football on mute. No, I, you should watch I, Death in Paradise on mute as well. The, to be fair. It's the awful. main reason I watch football on mute, obviously, is that on a Sunday afternoon, if there's a big game that, that I'm not going to, which is most big games, and Ed is still Palace kind Newcastle. of at large, then I will have the TV on <laughs> on mute whilst trying to corral him into what I'm trying to get him to do. And in the first lockdown, I actually found that the, the, the easiest way to make football seem most normal to me was to watch it on mute. If you watch football on mute, you don't notice there's no fans there because you know that the television is muted, so you, you're, not, you're not expecting there to be noise. I think even now, though, what, nine months in, even though the game itself is as good, and as Hugh said, it means as much to the players and the intensity is there and that the meaning is there and all that stuff, it's not that it's, it's not that it doesn't count or that we should put an asterisk by whoever wins the title, it's not that stuff. It's just that if you actually watch it, it's, it's, a, it's a much lesser spectacle. And the other thing that's really suffered, I think, is match of the day which sounds really stupid, but watching, watching highlights when there's no fans is really hard. I can't think of a, a psychological reason why that would be, but it just seems much less compelling. Partly, I suppose, as well, there's, um, there's fewer games on match of the day. It's always kind of, especially Saturday, there's now, what, a maximum of four, four games on a Saturday, and that, that makes it less compelling viewing. But I find that without, without fans celebrating goals, highlights really suffer. They don't seem like highlights. They still seem alien to me. They they seem much more eerie than just watching a game with no with no fans in the stadium. Do you know what that is? There's, there's a sense of place and and the way also and and Chinch and Steve will know this too. That match directors, pretty much the the secondary or the tertiary shot after a goal goes in is a fan pick. Mm-hmm. You will have player pulling away celebrating. You might have a manager or a wide shot of the player. 
you might also have fans and certainly you'll have fans after those two because it gives you a sense of a wider context. Mm. It, again, it telegraphs, it tells you, it story tells, it narrates. These are, these, this is what pictures do on television. That's I why do like you... that when they, when they pan to a set of celebrating fans and they're making certain hand gestures to the opposition fans. It's, 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 it's so English. It's wonderful. I like, I like the people who, and I do this when I'm, when I'm in stadiums, when there's fans in stadiums, who the section of the ground that is closest to the away fans when there is a goal, <laughs> instead of celebrating the goal that their team has scored, will always just turn to the away fans and swear at them. Yeah, Jack, Jack Grealish is six yards away from you celebrating your team scoring, but you're going to turn to your right and give the Southampton fans the Vs. Take that. No, wait a minute. There's Jack Grealish there. No, that's more important. I strongly believe that, that the people that sit on the line of seats immediately adjacent to the away section watch the least amount of football of any football fan in the world because they spend so much time turned 90 degrees. Can, I, can my seat actually face the fans rather than the pitch, please? Well, it's just like Rory watching Death in Paradise and turning 90 degrees on, on, on the odd occasion just to watch a little bit of the football which is muted on his laptop. And this is, this is how we live our lives. We prioritise. The thing you say about the storytelling in, in, in the context of highlights is absolutely right. So everyone knows there is a match of the day code. And this might be a little bit sort of English for, for our international audience, but there's a match of the day code. So like if you see, if a substitute comes on, that substitute, and that's used as part of the highlight package, that substitute is getting sent off or scoring. You know that. If you see a yellow card, there will be a red following <laughs> very quickly indeed. Like there, there's a reason that, they, that these shots are chosen. And I wonder if it's that the without the fans to tell that aspect of the story, that broader context of the story, you feel as though the story is not being told properly or cannot be told properly. And that's why watching highlights seems, seems much much more diminished than what... Watching a game to me isn't, isn't is diminished a little bit without the fans, but not as much as I thought it would be. Watching highlights without fans has been enormously diminished to me. Well, to bring it back to, to the third round of the FA Cup, uh, there was a great shot at the start. Are you getting of... sponsored by the FA Cup? Can we bring it back to the no, FA Cup? We're not just, talking it, about that. Uh, Can we go back to the third round of the FA Cup, please? The FA Cup, the FA Cup, the FA Cup. I match, know it's match, you're absolutely right. Sorry. Match of the day on the Saturday night, the third round of the FA Cup was an excellent watch. And, uh, you know, that was because, <laughs> <laughs> that was because Steve was uh, working on radio that day. <laughs> <laughs> The I actually, Hugh, as you well know, I was second game on match of the day that night, and and had a had a strong claim. To be on the order. But the, the there was a great shot at the start of the match of the day that day with with the Chorley Derby game from a, a high shot, sort of a, a blimp shot, which you had the the non-league ground tightly packed in around you know residential housing, the snow that had been cleared off the pitch to get it ready for the game was all piled up around, and there was just that layer that was missing the supporters, the, the, the carnival atmosphere, the colour. And it was a bit like almost one of those historical photographs that had been doctored in, in some way, whether colour had been added or a backdrop had been altered to demonstrate how, how history might have looked different if the circumstances around that pivotal moment had been slightly altered. It was like they'd been airbrushed out, the, that, that one layer that you expect to see. And it was the same at Blackpool that, that, that day, the, the Blackpool-West Brom game. Is that From the, the moment the game kicked off until the end of the penalty shootout, I don't believe anything about that would have been any different because of fans in the ground. But the minute the decisive West Brom penalty was saved, that's when you noticed it because there wasn't that eruption at, at, at that, that critical time of the fans celebrating a cup upset and knowing that their team was going through to, you know, against all odds was going through to the fourth round. So it's almost as though you need them before the game 
and you need them immediately afterwards, you can just about cope without them in the short term from the first whistle to the last. So I, one of the first games I watched in the, um, in the first, in the, in the immediate reprise in the spring was the, the Coppa Italia final, which was Napoli Juventus in Rome, I think. And that went to penalties. And I think we, that would have been mid June, possibly before the Premier League came back, but after the Bundesliga. Oh no, it was the day the Premier League came back. That's right. It was my birthday. So that would have been mid-June, my birthday, the most important day in the footballing calendar, which was the day, obviously, that the Premier League came back with, what, Sheffield United, Villa and City against somebody? Arsenal. City, Arsenal. And I the remember watching... You should have been in St. Petersburg, out for a run in the park with Chinch, shouldn't you? That Me day? and Chinch should have been in and St. Petersburg, but we're fart not. Fart-lecking, fart-lecking our, our, our legs off. Fart-lecking constantly, <laughs> yeah. just in public, fart-lecking. Yeah. And I think I watched United Villa in the way that I watched tea time games, which is whilst doing something else, and then watched City-Arsenal and thought, you know what, this isn't bad. And then I watched it tuned in for the penalties in the Coppa Italia final. Penalties in, in empty stadiums are awful. They, they, it just doesn't work. Like, it lacks all drama. That, I think, more than anything, is the, is the part of football that just cannot be replicated in empty stadiums. Do you not think? Uh, so penalty shootouts, I find, are really difficult to commentate on because you've got an awful lot to process in your head as... As, as you're going along, making sure that you're you're setting the scene, knowing the significance of each penalty as it comes, just the sh- just the sheer mass at times can get on top of you. And I did do an FA Cup qualifying round game that went to penalties. With there were a few fans in the ground, I'm sure there was about 100 fans in the ground, but the guy stepped up to take the decide what you know what was a decisive penalty, scored it, and even he didn't realise he'd won the game. Because without that sort of explosion and there wasn't enough people committed to, yeah, that was the moment that he sort of turned around and it needed, the, it needed his teammates on halfway looking at each other going, yeah, that was it. And there was that delayed reaction before they all suddenly started running towards the corner flag. So, yes, definitely penalty shootouts without fans is a bit of a nightmare. And we all know if there is any homogenous mass on whom to rely to provide mathematical accuracy, it is a group of football fans. Um, so <laughs> we can rely on them for that. No, just, uh, there's just there's enough of them get it right, Hugh, for the others to follow. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. all you need. Just, just one guy with a calculator and they just follow <laughs> that guy. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see over the course of the, the next few months uh, whether some of the things that we've brought to uh, our own attentions and perhaps yours as well. Uh, come to bear. Now, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is an Andy tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. I remember recently talking about um, things that have kind of stayed the same in the game that were, were there when I played. And it, they weren't really important things, like Ben Chilwell drilling a 60-yard crossfield pass like I did. There were things like players coming out to warm up trying to hit the crossbar. You know, these really, and trying to knock the heads off mascots, that type of thing. All this stuff still goes on. But I've taken a lot of grief over the years about our our kickoff technique at Everton. Obviously, we'd, we'd if we had if we had the kickoff. Obviously, we'd, we'd roll the ball back, and I would I would step up and I would drop the ball over the opposition's left back's head. To basically, the plan was to to get the opposition turned immediately, rather than go backwards to a centre half or a goalkeeper who just lumps it up the pitch. While the opposition is pinned in their own half, we try and pin them in even more. We play it over the top of the left back's head. If the ball goes out of play it's not the end of the world because you're still 
okay, the opposition have the ball, but it's a throw-in deep in their own territory where they did, really don't want to be. We can step onto them. So this was a plan. And I've mentioned this to loads of people over the end. They all said, oh, you, well, you wouldn't see that anymore. That's just that's just lump it forward. And there's there's no sense or rhyme or reason to that. And I've always thought, well, clearly there, there was, but there haven't. I've, I've watched games and games and games over the years, and it hasn't really happened. But someone texted me the other day, a, a renowned commentator, and said to me, I remember you mentioning about this kickoff that you did at Everton, dropping the ball. I said, yeah. And he said, apparently, Barnsley, Corley Woodrow at Barnsley. Apparently, this is the thing that Barnsley do now, is that when they kick off, rather than go backwards to go forwards, they just immediately go forwards. And they do exactly the same thing. And sometimes the ball goes out of place. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's a really... So, again, seems to have gone full circle rather than just keep the ball and say, well, you know, the pitches are so good and we're so good technically that why would we give the ball away in essence, right from the kickoff when we have it, but it seems to have come and maybe it never went away. It probably, I can't remember watching too many games where, and certainly in the Premier League, you don't see any team. Would you do that? Knock that ball over the top and get a team turned and press them in. Rory, you're nodding. So maybe it's, it's happening more than I thought, but when I heard this about Corley Woodrow, I thought, wow, it's actually in 2020, this tactic is still being used, which is a, a really effective. I was a left back. That's the last place I would want to be from a kickoff when you're thinking they're going to go backwards. We'll be able to step up the pitch. First thing you're doing is turning and running back. It makes sense, but have you seen have you seen teams do this? Yeah, but, well, Barnsley quite interesting in a lot of ways. They're they're a, a quite a smart forward thinking club. I think Barnsley. Yeah, yeah. Kind of someone someone compared them to. Brentford, but without the publicity to me, which I think makes sense. Lee they... Johnson was there, and then Gerhard Struber, Struber who was, was really there, manager. did a he's brilliant job, and then he's, he yeah. was picked off. I can't, I think there's another guy coming, but I think you're right. I did, yeah, I think they really do work very hard on, on all aspects of yeah. the game. Um, but I would say that Liverpool certainly. Oh, do they? Do kick off. They don't necessarily, it's not necessarily trying to, they're not aiming for the corners to try and turn the other team, but they, Liverpool conspicuously take the kickoff. They don't knock the kickoff itself, they'll go backwards first, but the the ball is worked back to a centre-back who will then pop it into one of those two zones kind of level with the penalty area. Because we even thought, going back to a centre-half, why would you waste... Because obviously it's a harder yeah. ball to play, it's a bigger distance, and it to be accurate. But also if you look at rugby, the way that they... You know these kickoffs at rugby where they put the ball so high that it gives their team the chance to get underneath mm. the ball. So as the ball's dropping, the opposition's under pressure. So I rather than drill it, and put it out of play. I'd look to, again, drop it into that Slow area. Team, yeah. We used to practice, but put it high so it enables our strikers. And then you've got a fullback with the ball in the air. He'll see strikers running on top of him. But again, we didn't go back to a centre-half because then the forward ball is a lot more difficult to get right because of the distance. Yeah. Involved. So we used to take it, drop it back, literally a couple of hours, and I would be there just to, but again, get underneath it. And the more I did it, the more comfortable I got with it, the higher the I wanted the ball in the air. Because basically, even though you hate rugby, even though it's a wonderful game, that's where I saw it. Why do they put so much height yeah. on these kickoffs? It's to give your team. So strangely, you're giving the ball away, but you're putting the opposition under enormous pressure and actually the ball then on the front foot immediately yeah. rather than go back into your own half. And, it's and again, it just makes perfect sense, but I hadn't seen a lot of teams use it. It makes sense because I've not like examined it enough, but I wonder whether Southampton would do Southampton would strike me as a sort of candidate to do, to do something similar just because if you're a team that emphasizes pressing the high press yeah the yeah. first thing you want to do is is have an opportunity to press and it's not a lack of, not a lack of yeah it's not a lack yeah. of technical ability it's actually getting from from the first second of a game you put the opposition under pressure and you're playing your game even when yeah. the ball is in the air so again at times this is Willie Donicky again all this kind of uh why we did all these things but I remember 
what was I think I told the story when it was Sheffield Wednesday with Danny Wilson. When I said we were doing this at Sheffield Wednesday as well, dropping the ball. Um, and I said, well, we're going to do that with the first kickoff we have, but what about the second one? And he said, well, there won't be a second one, will there? Because we're not going to concede. Ah, yeah, you're right there. I just presume playing Man United, clearly. What do we do with the second? Because we're going to concede, aren't we? It's not just going to be one kickoff we're going to have, is it? And I kind of fell into the trap of saying, well, what do we do with it? We do want to do it with the next one as well. And he said, well, there won't be a next one. But clearly there was a next one. And we didn't know what to do. We were completely bamboozled. We had to go backwards then because we had no plan B. Did it six times that day. Um, ah! It's like, yeah, another another sport that uh, Roy particularly loves. It's like a lob wedge, isn't it? You just want to lob it nicely with a little bit of backspin so it drops uh, beautifully in the position that you want it to. And I don't know which game it was recently that I saw, but there was a kickoff and genuinely same principle, but they had um, the attacking team or the team taking the kickoff had three players right to the left, yes. yeah. Right, yeah. On the, right on the halfway line, ready to raid. Basically, so that's the kind of. Would you remember? Do you must remember Mick Harford at Luton, big, strong yeah. centre foot. Luton's. If you were a right no back, I remember Matt Jackson when we played against Luton. If you were a right back against Luton and Mick Harford was playing, that's exactly what they did. But they didn't look to drop the ball behind a right back. They would dr- put it up in the air, as you would say. They'd have three attackers. One of them would be Mick Harford, who, as soon as he heard the whistle, he was just running into Matt Jackson, basically. And the ball would be in the air. He wouldn't even look at the ball. It was just absolutely terrifying. But you knew if you were a fullback, if they won the toss and kicked off, you need to put a motorcycle helmet on because Mick Harford was going to be running over you very, very soon. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecebenio at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Andy and Rory and to Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. That was a good pod, that. Did you enjoy that? They're all good, oh, that They're all good. Uh, that's really interesting, isn't it? Going to have an on-air yeah. debrief. Uh, no, let's not do that. We've, we've just chatted for an hour. That's enough for anybody, isn't it? Really? Depends which context, which which debrief Hugh means. Does he mean the one that gets people fired for doing it on Zoom? Because we're not doing that. <laughs> no. No, I didn't really realise that was also a euphemism. Which other which other uh, centre forwards would you not want to have running headlong towards you on kickoff? Because um, I can imagine Mick Harford would be prepared to lose any any I number must, of teeth in the con- collision that ensued. Contractually, everyone has to say Big Duncan Ferguson at this point. <laughs> there we and go. Do, do, you, do it. You're all probably too young to remember. Have I mentioned Billy Whitehurst? Everyone knows yes. Billy Whitehurst. Yes. Billy Whitehurst. I was. Did you play against him? Yes, I did. When he was, uh, I'm sure he was at Sheffield United. And he was their striker, and I was must have been seventeen. I'm sure I must have told this as a soccer story. Yes, he yes, was yeah. terrifying. I'm sure I heard the story where he he offered out a referee for a fight in the car park after the game because he was so unhappy. He was, yeah. I don't know what modern centre forward would you not want? Are they really? Is there anybody you would really be scared of if you were a fullback and the ball was in the air? Uh, Andy Carroll. Well, he arrived about Carroll. two and a half hours late. Mm. So be all right. They Newcastle, and that was he was incredibly naughty though as well. He was that was unacceptable. Some of the stuff he did from kickoffs as well. I think you know, jumping and leading that's really really dangerous. But well, everyone can be. You know, I can run into somebody, but I think if if it's part of your natural game to want to run into somebody with your head, I think that's a whole different ball game, and that's a whole different kind of tranche of footballers, isn't it? But there must be there must be some tough cookies out there that you really wouldn't want splattering you. Like, it's not Sergio Aguero's not going to do it, is he? You know, he wouldn't, that's not, and City aren't going to, they're not going to kick off like that, are they? There's no way, if I said to Pep, 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 I think we should be getting Alexander Sinchenko to drop the ball over there. It just, it just pushed me in the face, wouldn't he? It just pushed me out of the training ground and never come back here again. You know nothing about football. 
I'd show him the videos, but he just wouldn't give a toss, would he?